Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, following the truth wherever it leads, exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites, revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality, coming to you from the Great White North and his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard. And welcome once again to another episode of Strange Planet. Thank you, as always, for sticking me in your ear. Let me uh, crib for you from the back of the book, Quantum Spirituality, the subject of tonight's episode. From the dawn of history, a universal wisdom tradition has existed that explains humanity's purpose in the cosmos and our relationship to the master source consciousness. This mystical philosophy was harnessed by the ancient seers known as Gnostics, who were in direct contact with Source Consciousness. My guest, Peter Canova, reveals not only do the ancient teachings of Gnosticism contain important spiritual truths, but they profoundly align with the modern science of quantum physics and psychology. They can also provide us with transformative, a transformative path to higher consciousness and practical tools to create your own reality. Peter Canova is an international businessman who decided to write novels after undergoing a series of spiritual experiences that altered the course of his life. In the early 2000s, he won a grand literary prize for his very first short story at the highly respected Santa Barbara Writers' Conference. Shortly thereafter, he took first place out of 500 entries in Francis Ford Coppola's online Zoetrope magazine for his first publicly circulated short story, The Blood of Our Departed. His fictional series, The First Souls Trilogy, is a saga about the first fall of spirit consciousness into the material existence. The books have won 25 literary awards, including Nautilus, Writer's Digest, and Eric Hoffer. Peter has also been honored as a Chicken Soup of the Soul author. Quantum Spirituality is Peter's latest book describing the origin, purpose, and destiny of humanity grounded on quantum science and the ancient universal spiritual tradition lost to the West for 2,000 years. Peter Canova, welcome to Strange Planet. How are you? Hi, Richard. Thank you. With that summary, I guess I can go home now. <laughs> <laughs> Let's begin with your psychic, spiritual experience that led you on this path. Yeah, well, um, as they stay in um, Star Wars long ago and far away when I was in my 20s, uh, I underwent a series of experiences and I found out that I was a very accurate medical intuitive. And, um, you know, people really just had to give me a name, age and address of somebody. And I could very accurately describe what was going on with them, both physically and psychologically. And when I kind of got over the disbelief of what I was doing, I opened up kind of opened up a uh, floodgate of experiences, clairvoyance, clairaudience, remote viewing, premonitions, and so forth. So being a Capricorn, I wasn't really satisfied just to have these experiences. I wanted to understand the nuts and the bolts behind them. So I embarked on pretty much a lifelong study during my adult life of trying to find out what was you know behind this uh, information, this force that was providing information to me. And it led me to the study of ancient spiritual text and then eventually the quantum physics, which isn't really a coincidence because both spiritual mysticism and quantum physics cover light energy and matter as a focus of their uh, you know, respective discourses. So that's how I wound up doing all these books. Tell me uh, or give my listeners kind of a crash course in Gnosticism. 
Okay. The Gnostics were centered in Alexandria, Egypt, which in its day was the intellectual center of the universe, at least in the Western world. And being there, they were subject to uh, a whole confluence of different spiritual traditions, the Hindus, um, Persian Zoroastrianism, the Jude Judaistic Kabbalah, Hellenistic uh, philosophy and the Hellenistic mysteries, and even er Egyptian Hermeticism. And all of these traditions really had a common source at one time. Over the millennia, they became differentiated, but you could still see many of the common roots. And the interesting thing about the Gnosticisms, Gnostic, Gnostics were that they uh, synthesized all this information. And moreover, they were great practitioners because in many of these spiritual traditions, we can read about the wisdom and we could read about certain things, but, you know, they, they really never describe um, how they kind of went over to the other side and brought this stuff back. Well, the Gnostics brought back some very, very clear information, which could be proved out in the objective world. And uh, to that extent, I think they were the great scientists of their age. What they described to us is a really fantastic overlay to modern quantum theory and to Jungian psychology, the psychology of Carl Jung. In fact, Carl Jung, when he first read about the Gnostics, he kind of said, well, you know, God, these people arrived at me before me. Um, and he was almost like a, he had some rather Gnostic experiences himself with uh, premonitions and dreams and so forth. So, uh, you know, I, I settled on the Gnostics because I saw that they had, um, you know, predicted so many modern theories of uh, quantum physics relating to the creation of the universe, the operation of uh, light energy and matter and um, information about the source from where this all came. So the Gnostics predate Christianity, but they had a particular view of, of Jesus Christ. Uh, what, what did they think of his teachings? Yeah, it's very interesting. They did predate Christianity, but they also became the first Christians because they recognized in Jesus of Nazareth that he was teaching a Gnostic teaching. Now, we know from the Bible, it says right in all of the Synoptic Gospels that Jesus had two teachings, that one was for the parables. It said something I'm paraphrasing now, but unto the disciples, he gave the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And unto those, you know, without he gave parables. We also have further evidence from early church fathers like Clement of Alexandria and Origen, both of whom were uh, early Christian bishops in Alexandria, who confirmed that Jesus had a secret teaching that uh, it was mostly imparted orally and it wasn't given out freely because they were afraid that the masses would misunderstand it and it would be bastardized. Uh, essentially, that's kind of what happened anyway, because what we see in early Christianity is two divergent streams. You had the inner mystical church, which was largely Gnostic, and then you had the outer church, which evolved into the churches that we know today, the Catholic, the Orthodox, uh, Protestant churches that we know today. So um, the, there were always two streams of Christianity going on, even from the very early days. And it, it just so happens that the mystical part of the church was largely led by females, such as Mary Magdalene. When and how did the Gnostics uh, become heretics in the eyes of the church? Well, I think probably over the course of the second century after the death of Christ, um, 
they were all going to, at some point, they were all attending sort of one church. They were, they were sort of one church, but you could see where the divergence would come from because essentially the message of the Gnostics was that unlike the Orthodox view of God and creation, which was that we are something separate from the creator. We're kind of like these wind-up dolls um, that were a separate creation, sort of like, well, think of Geppetto and Pinocchio, right? Geppetto created Pinocchio. Pinocchio was something separate from Geppetto. Geppetto was the creator. Pinocchio was the created. But the Gnostics said, no, that's not the way it is. We are not creations of the one force. We are actually projections or emanations of its essence, albeit in a rather diluted form. But nonetheless, we are part and parcel of this conscious stream of uh, that, that essentially created everything there is. And I guess the best way that I can liken it to a modern analogy is think of a power grid. You have the source and then you have the relay stations, okay, that, that, that further the energy throughout the grid. Well, that's essentially the way that the Gnostics viewed that we operated. We were kind of like the relay stations, uh, separate points of consciousness that were projected by the source. And we participate in that stream known as reality. Of course, the, or the Orthodox disagreed with that vehemently because they had now evolved to the point where they had a hierarchy and they had a priesthood and they had dogmas. And essentially what they were telling the masses were, if you want to know God, you got to come through us. We're the intercessors. The church is the intercessor between you and the divine. And so you could see that the Gnostics were a great threat to them because you really didn't need all that hierarchy and you didn't need all that dogma if you subscribe to what the Gnostics were telling you. Uh, can you give us a, a quick summation of the, the Gnostic creation story, how we got here, what we are? Yeah, it was very interesting. Um, essentially, uh, there was one source. So think of it, think of the layers of an onion, right? And there were, at the very center was the source of everything. This source, in order to better understand itself, in order to better express itself, needed contrast because if you're everything and you're in contrast to nothing you can't really understand anything about yourself so essentially what they were saying is the source existed but it wasn't experiencing and in order for the source to actually experience and, and reflect upon itself it had to project other points of consciousness now these other points of consciousness and you can think of them you know, you can think of them as spiritual beings. What, what they really were were centers of intelligent energy. They were kind of like you could think of them as entities because they were, you know, most certainly had organized uh, influences uh, and, uh, and functions uh, in the greater scheme, scheme of creation. They were called eons, A-E-O-N-S, which means eternities. And really what they were, when you look at their names, they, they were given names like wisdom, justice, love, mercy. They were archetypes. So what, what they, they were really Jungian archetypes, and um, they were the, the expression of God's benevolent essence. So um, they essentially, they, the way they propagated themselves was, was kind of like, well, think of the way, you know, you make copies of a CD. You have a, the original, you have the original version, and then you have a copy, and then a copy of the copy, and a copy of that. Well, each successive copy has a little less clarity, has a little less fidelity. So this is the way that the Gnostics said that creation proceeded, because each of these eons, which became dimen separate dimensions in and of themselves, dimensions of existence, were, were, were um, a little bit more and more uh, diluted in their consciousness, a little bit more ignorant 
of uh, the central consciousness itself. But they knew themselves to be themselves, but they knew themselves to be part of God. But they could never attain the supreme consciousness of the one, because if they did, they'd just be reabsorbed back into that. They wouldn't be individuals anymore. So the youngest of these projections uh, was called Sophia. And Sophia in Greek means wisdom. And that's the reason why we don't really recognize her prominence in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. Uh, wisdom is mentioned throughout in the book of Job and the book of Proverbs. She uh, is, says that uh, I was there from the beginning. I am coterminous with the one. She was, you know, a very close essence of the one. But she was um, the youngest of these or the furthest projected out of these spiritual beings. And being wisdom... She had a desire to learn and create on her own, because after all, that's the way wisdom grows, right? Through experience. So Sophia looks outside this divine sphere that had been created with all these eons, all these different dimensions rotating around the one. And she looks out to something called chaos. Now, that's very interesting because modern chaos theory is very closely related to the quantum field theory or quantum foam, essentially what science is telling us is, is that everything at its essence is not matter, it's energy. And there is energy that is in potential, that's unformed, and you'll have virtual particles in that, in that field, right? So Sophia projects herself into this area called chaos. She, she essentially projects her essence into chaos, into the quantum field. And lo and behold, something very strange happens. There was something in the quantum field, in, in the chaos, called proto-matter. Now think about that for a second, very sophisticated for its age, which means that which exists before matter. What she was taught, what they were talking about were virtual particles in this quantum field. So these virtual particles flock to Sophia's energy. She, she activates them in effect. She, she, she makes them realize their, their, their uh, existence. She activates them and they flock around her like iron filings would flock to a magnet. Two things happen. They become activated, but her energy starts to lower. And this merger of the, the, the virtual particles with Sophia's energy starts to form actual matter. And she cries out to heaven, save me from this matter. My light energy is being absorbed. I am becoming as lead. I am becoming as matter. So th this, is, this is really interesting because what she's really describing is the operation of something your listeners may have heard of in pop culture called the God particle. Okay, now the God particle... I know it was in one of Dan Brown's movies. I think it was Angels and Demons. And there was a lot of you know talk about it. It was a sexy topic back about eight years ago. And then they discovered it. It was always theorized, but they discovered it. So the deal, the deal with that is that energy comes into our universe. Scientists have no idea what energy is. They have no idea where it comes from. They can manipulate it under limited circumstances, but that's all they can do. So... This energy coming into our universe uh, comes into this field that permeates our universe called the Higgs field. And within the Higgs field are Higgs bosons, these virtual particles called Higgs bosons. And the Higgs bosons attach themselves to these high moving energy fields and they slow them down. And they slow them to the point where they become dense like matter. Now, you get the analog here, Sophia's high energy, the, 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 uh, the proto-matter, the virtual particles, slowing her energy down, forming matter. This is a complete description of the God particle and matter formation uh, of, of our universe. And, and, and what we mentioned before about the, uh, the, the projections of these eons were essentially parallel dimensions that we talk about. Uh, 
there's something that, it, that I, I think existed before the Gnostics going all the way back to the, the shamanism, a tradition called the perennial philosophy. Yes. Can you talk to me about the perennial philosophy? What is it all about? Well, much, much of, uh, much of Gnosticism, um, really is about the perennial philosophy. I mean, essential, the, the, essentially the perennial philosophy said there is one force that has created everything in the universe, that that one force expresses itself through the vehicle of light energy, that that light energy manifests as everything we know, uh, including the human soul and including human consciousness. And, you know, you can sort of take it off from there. Those are like sort of maybe the three major tenets. There's a lot of other things that I could mention, but those are the three propositions there that um, really all life stems from consciousness. Now, that contradicts the modern view of what we call scientific materialism, because traditional science, not quantum science, I'm making a distinction here, but traditional science really says that, you know, it's kind of like life, the great accident. There, there are somehow inorganic particles became organic and they started bumping against one another. And somehow they started forming more and more complex structures leading up to, you know, our human existence, our human brains. But it's all BS because they it, it's based on things that are not provable. And they love to not talk about things that aren't provable, like consciousness, and yet their basic theory of existence is not provable. And, and it, moreover, it makes no logical sense of how inorganic matter all of a sudden you know, became organic. What makes a lot more sense, instead of this bottom-up view of how creation just happened by accident, is the top-down view that everything started from consciousness and proceeded downward from there, where spirit intelligence decided to express itself through various spheres or parallel dimensions of creation right on down to our level, which is spirit energy in material forms. We're going to take a quick time out, uh, Peter. When we come back, we'll continue to uh, delve into quantum spirituality and uh, talk a little bit more about uh, the nature of consciousness, the nature of reality as seen by the Gnostics. Back with more in a moment. Don't go away. Truth will set you free, free, free. But first, it will really tick you off. Welcome back to Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Peter Canova is my guest. Quantum spirituality, science, Gnostic mysticism, and connecting with source consciousness is the new book. Uh, a foreword by James Redfield, who is the, the author of the wildly popular The Celestine Prophecy. Um, was this a, the, a Gnostic... Talk to me about the Gnostics' view of the nature of reality. Uh, there's something in the book about um, our 3D reality is not independent. It's not. It's not an objective. It's or independent of our objective um, uh, experiences and observations of reality. Right. Well, um, what you're talking about is a holographic universe theory, uh, or the, the the fact that we live in a simulated uh, reality, which um, is gaining a lot of traction now. In fact, you know, recently I have people like Elon Musk uh, talking about it, although his his conception of it is a little bit different from what the Gnostics were saying. But um, essentially, the Gnostic view of reality was that it, we're, we're living in an illusion. That, uh, in essence, we think that we're these material creatures and that, you know, reality ends at the boundaries of our skin. 
Whereas the Gnostics were saying, no, we're sort of maybe the tail end of uh, a much greater and deeper reality. We're like the tip of the iceberg. And what lies at the base of the pyramid uh, is much, uh, much broader and uh, much more detailed, probably operating through various dimensions, various parallel dimensions of consciousness, because that's how they that's how they view dimensions. Dimensions to the Gnostics were not spaces or places. They were vibrations or frequencies of consciousness. So essentially, the Gnostic view was that consciousness descended through various layers, which would have been, you know, um, uh, what what you would call of limitation uh, in order to have different types of experience. And we, you know, very well may be sort of the bottom rung here of uh, of that uh, limitation. And and again, the necessity for the limitation goes part and parcel with the whole idea of experiencing individuality because it's only by a limitation of the supreme consciousness that we can view ourselves as something individual and apart from that supreme consciousness so right there it's a smoke and mirror game it's what the hindus called maya or illusion but in actuality um you know we're we're we are more like a projection of a deeper reality from from somewhere else. Now, the way this ties in to modern quantum physics is this. Um, a series of experiments, I won't go through all of them, but a series of experiments over several decades uh, led scientists to posit this holographic universe theory. And one of the experiments was uh, yielded the fact of uh, what they call quantum entanglement. So that is where particles that are virtually light years apart can instantly correlate with one another. They exchange information faster than the speed of light. So that would be like, let's say there's a Richard on Earth and there's a Richard on Mars, and I pinch the Richard on Earth, the Richard on Mars says, ouch, at the very same time. Now, how does that happen? Well, they don't have a couple tin cans with strings connected or telephone wires or fiber optics or anything. It's happening through some unseen medium. So they, the, the, uh, they started to suspect that maybe what's happening here is that these particles are actually single appearances of one whole, of one, one, one holistic thing. The idea of the holographic universe, which, which is essentially incidentally what a hologram is, a hologram, each individual part of a hologram, no matter how much you slice it or dice it, contains the image of the whole, okay? So the whole is present in a holographic context. Now, another interesting thing that happened is that they started studying black holes and uh, Jacob Beckenstein, uh, in particular, uh, found that uh, a black hole uh, has what's called an event horizon. And then beyond inside the event horizon, we don't know what there is. And that's where the blackness of the black hole comes from inside the event horizon. But um, the information that makes up a black hole, and incidentally, I have to footnote this, um, information in the modern scientific context essentially means uh, everything that makes something something. So it's almost like a kind of algorithm that gives different shape and forms to all the appearances in the universe. So for instance, you, me, you know, we're all, uh, we all have these sort of um, algorithms uh, or, or information that uh, is conveyed by energetic means that gives us the forms and appearances we have. So what they found out about a black hole was that the information that makes up a black hole, you would think it's inside the black hole, right? 
but no, it's not. It's on the outside of the black hole. It's on the event horizon, and it's 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 two dimensional, and it's projected inward to form the three dimensional information of the black hole. Now, to give a more easily understandable example, let's say there's a bucket, and inside the bucket is our universe, and our universe incidentally does have boundaries. Okay, so it's not implausible to picture the universe inside a bucket. But let's say you know we think that the information that makes up the universe, you know our world, the stars, the galaxies, and everything else, we would think of that information as being inside the bucket, but it's not. It's outside on the skin of the bucket. It's in two dimension, like two-dimensional sheets or film sheets uh, that they call Planck lengths. Again, I don't want to get too complicated here, but they're projected inward and they form the 3D reality of our universe. So essentially, uh, with all these things starting to add up to indicate to us that what the Gnostics were saying, which is that we live in kind of a virtual simulation and we're like a dream projection within what we view is the material world. And yet there's a deeper energetic world that is not material as we know it that underlies all this activity. It almost sounds like it's not only a holographic universe, it's a digital holographic universe. Could be. Could be. So how do we... First of all, this is, as you point out in the book, it's very timely because uh, Carl Jung talked about this as well, that if we, if we don't um, see ourselves as, you know, as, as part of something greater, a source consciousness, uh, then we have this, and we have this separateness, which is a result of, I guess, um, uh, dualism and, and uh, materialism and so forth. Uh, we tend to organize ourselves in sort of uh, totalitarian regimes. We tend to lean towards authoritarianism. Can you kind of walk us through that? Well, um, I, I mean, I, what I really think what I really think it boils down to is that once you better understand the nature of consciousness, you're, you're getting information from the source and you're less susceptible to take it on faith from somebody else. So um, when I do my talks, for instance, public speaking, I'll often say to the audience right off the bat, don't believe a damn thing I'm going to tell you. And they sit there kind of, you know, saying, well, what I pay to come here for, you know, but you know, what, what I mean by that is I'm not telling them don't listen to what I say or don't consider what I say. But what I'm saying is don't take everything as an article of faith when I'm telling you, because the place that you want to be is where you can derive your own direct experience from the source. And then, you know, you know the truth of it. Now, there's four elements that you, you come into play here, at least in my view. And that is faith, belief, knowledge, and revelation. So faith would be the lowest rung on the ladder because essentially faith is something that, you know, you take for granted that you've heard or read or somebody else has told you. So, you know, if you were like a novice to the world and somebody told you that water burns, you know, you might believe them, you know, and, and let's say you read, uh, you read in a book somewhere that water burns. Okay. Well, we all know that's not true, but when you stick your hand in the water, you know, the truth, right? That's direct experience, but it goes to show you that faith and even knowledge and then beliefs, the beliefs that you develop out of that faith and knowledge can be wrong. They're not necessarily right, but there's a higher form of knowledge, which is what the Gnostics dealt with. The Gnostics dealt with knowledge through direct experience, not book-learned knowledge. You know, they, they would revere 
you know, the writings of the sages. They would view that as one of the ways, you know, um, that you could um, essentially experience the divine. The, the three things that they uh, said were, you know, it would be the sacred writings um, uh, that uh, you, from which you would derive knowledge from nature, observation of nature, and then direct experience with the divine itself. But all these paths could lead to direct knowledge. So it's not like they disrespected book knowledge, but they felt that there was a higher form of knowledge which was knowledge that would lead one to actually have experiences with the divine. And then once you had that knowledge, that's called revelation. That's the highest form of understanding. So once we reach that point, we're less susceptible to take at face value the things that others tell us to lead us who may have agendas or you know whatever the, whatever the case may be. We actually learn to think and understand the world for ourselves. Uh, is is part of that tendency to um, towards uh, authoritarianism or tyrannical behavior um, the quest to fill this void because of the separateness that we have? So instead of um, agape, which you mentioned, <clears throat> which is a word we use around here a lot because we're this is a Greek household, uh, you know, this higher understanding of love. Um, that we have to fill that void with something. And so we tend to fill it with power, greed, the accumulation of, you know, material wealth. And that tends to lead us towards, you know, brutish behavior. Well, you know, the Gnostics always said that from the very existence, from the very beginning of creation, there was a force of opposition. And it was there by necessity originally because the force of opposition essentially was the free will. In other words, you have to had had to have a contrasting or opposing um, view to being in harmony with the source. Uh, but you know, in order to exercise free will, you had to make the choice to exercise your own will versus the will of the one, or the, you know, and that that was again wrapped up with individuality. So, at the highest levels of creation, opposition was there. Um, in order to allow uh, free choice or free will. When you get down into the lower levels of creation, the lower planes of consciousness, it takes on more uh, unsavory characteristics. And essentially uh, what it really is about uh, is about control, about people wanting to exert power and control. And the Gnostics had a whole set of lower uh, quasi-spiritual um, beings, what they, they called archons, and these archons were uh, essentially um, responsible for m many of the, um, uh, you know, baser uh, influences on humanity. They fed off of negative human emotions. And there's analogs, like I think Castaneda talked about flyers and other people have talked about shadows and, and these kinds of beings. But, you know, what it, what it really boils down to is various forms of control. There, there are powers in this world that thrive off of control. Now, we see it happening, unfortunately, right here in our country. And I think it's really a shame what's going on because, you know, I, I used to say many years ago that if fascism comes to this country, it's not going to come like it did in Germany, okay, through some right-wing movement. It's going to come under the banner of brotherhood, equality, and fraternity, and it's going to be used as a control mechanism. And lo and behold, what do we have today? We have people running around here um, spouting out all this woke stuff uh, and, you know, uh, as if um, they have the moral high ground. But the practical results of that are they want to shut you up with political correctness. They want to cancel you if you have an opposing point of view. And they want to make one standard 
the standard of everybody, which essentially is what happened in communist China and what happened in Russia. Okay. So, and, and yet they've duped so many people into thinking that if they subscribe to these things, they're, they're, they're doing good. They can feel good about themselves. You know, they're not this and they're not that. And, and the result is division. What it's done, it, it's divided us up into smaller and smaller and smaller groups that we identify with instead of the agape that you talked about, which is expansive and understands the unity of creation. They've divided us up into little interest groups that they pit against one another politically and socially and otherwise. And we become a divided country. You know, uh, I mean, I love Dr. Martin Luther King and his vision, but the way things have evolved right now, we, we, we're anything but a colorblind society. We're a color conscious society. And, and we seem to be more separated, you know, than ever where it's like, aren't we all Americans? No, you know, we're, we're this or we're that, we're this group or that group, you know, it's all identity politics. These are control mechanisms that are used and they become effective when people forget to put our true unity above all that division. And that's where, where our focus is. When our focus is on division, then we will be divided. If our focus is on unity, we find better ways to solve our problems with, you know, common, common visions and common goals. All right. We'll take another time out. When we come back, we'll, uh, we'll find out how we can um, leverage uh, this understanding of reality and consciousness through the perspective of Gnosticism, uh, how we can leverage that for uh, a more meaningful life. Back with my conversation with Peter Canova right after these. It's time to redefine reality. This is Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Quantum spirituality, science, Gnostic mysticism, and connecting with source consciousness, Peter Canova, my guest. Um, before we get into, uh, I guess, the recipe for a more meaningful life through quantum spirituality, uh, are you at all hopeful? Are you seeing um, science, um, organized religion, and Gnosticism kind of reconciling in any way? I don't see scientific materialism and organized religion ever reconciling. I do see spiritualism and quantum science reconciling. I think that's where it's heading. Um, I know there was an article uh, I saw a, a few years ago in Newsweek, and they were gleefully proclaiming that religion is dead, uh, you know, in America, and you know, because they're secularists. Uh, and uh, what's actually happening is, yes, it's true, religion is eroding, but I also have noticed, um, and I think the statistics show, corresponding levels of people who identify themselves as being spiritual. So they haven't abandoned God, they haven't abandoned the idea that there is um, a, a, uh, you know, a supreme force out there. Uh, they've just changed their view of how to get there. Now, I also see quantum science evolving in this regard, because quantum physicists are the ones who bump up against the creation. Okay. Unlike, you know, day-to-day -day scientists, practical applied scientists, they're the ones who are like right out there on the frontiers. And I, the, more and more, they're starting to cope with what they call the hard problem. And that is consciousness. And in fact, there's a movement among scientists right now called panpsychism. 
And panpsychism essentially recognizes that everything is consciousness. It's just a matter of degree. It's just a matter of degree, frequency, or vibration. This is exactly what the Gnostics were saying. So I see a branch of science and I see a branch of spiritual endeavor coming together. But I think they're going to leave behind in the dust their orthodox counterparts, orthodox religion and orthodox scientific materialism. And I hope they do. So uh, how do we use this information in a practical sense? How do we use quantum spirituality to lead more meaningful, fearless lives? Well, look, in the book, I give a tremendous amount of detail on um, things that will help people understand and solve that question, which, of course, I can't cover all of that here. But what I will say is that quantum spirituality is essentially a roadmap for people's spiritual journeys. And like any map, you have to have at least two coordinates. You have to have um, you know, an X and Y axis or a latitude and longitude. And my two coordinates are Gnostic mysticism and quantum science, because essentially, as I've tried to demonstrate here today, they're pretty much saying the same thing in rather startling terms. Now, people can read a book or they can listen to me or they can listen to you. But again, I get back to the point is that we, all we can do is be is inspire. All we can do is be signposts to people along their spiritual journey. And as I said, I don't want anybody taking anything that I'm saying for gospel. But in the book, if you do read the book, there's a wealth of knowledge in there that connects the dots from a scientific, a mystical, and a psychological standpoint, psychological standpoint. So you have three of the most fundamental disciplines, mind, spirit, and body, all pointing towards the same thing, which is what the book tries to show. If people can take the knowledge in this book to be inspired, they have to do the work themselves because no one is going to, you know, you can't just sit there and somebody's going to confer consciousness on you. You know, you have to work at it yourself. Now that could be through a meditative practice or whatever, you know, whatever you choose yoga, uh, whatever the case may be. Um, but what quantum spirituality helps people to do again is connect the dots and inspire people to the fact that there is something out there greater than what we think ourselves to be. We are far greater than what we think ourselves to be. In fact, Orthodox religion has done nothing but try and tell us how lowly we are. You know, essentially we were born into original sin. We pissed God off and now we're spending the rest of our lives trying to, you know, get back in his good graces. That, that, that's not the vision of humanity that the Gnostics had. If you follow that vision, and if you follow the vision in the book Quantum Spirituality, you come to realize that humans have a very exalted role, that we're essentially the fingers of God touching the face of this earth. And our purpose is to spiritualize the material and bring the experience of the material back to spirit. And that one, one day, when enough of this consciousness is realized, the division between heaven and earth, the division between consciousness will evaporate. And that's when we perhaps will experience what Jesus said, well, the kingdom of heaven come to earth. You know, that, 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 the veil, that the veil is open, the veil vanishes. I do believe in the long run that that is the potential that humanity can really achieve if we work on helping to awaken ourselves. And I do give some, I can't tell people how to um, conduct their medication, meditation, but I do uh, give about a dozen examples in the book of factors that people should be cognizant of pers uh, pers pursuant to meditation that will really help propel 
their meditative experiences. So um, I try to bring it down to a very practical, you know, nuts and bolts kind of thing that people can contemplate to incorporate this knowledge. Um, obviously, right now, people are stressed to the max. Uh, things are just changing uh, constantly <laughs> under our feet. Uh, there's a lot of angst and anxiety in the world. What um, what can you give people sort of in the in the immediate that might help them uh, deal with some of that, the anxiety more than anything else? Well, you know, it's a very hard question to answer. What I all I can tell you is my own experience. Okay, when I had these experiences, I realized not just in theory or intellectually, but I realized that there was a whole nother source of life and intelligence out there and that it's not separated from us, but it's within us and it's broadcast 24 seven, but we have to do the work to tune the dial and hit that frequency where we can hear it. So, you know, I felt prior to my own experiences, I was like somebody who was searching and I was tuning that dial, but I was just hearing a lot of static, but then lo and behold, one day, you know, I hit on that frequency and I realized when, when I sat there and was very accurately helping people understand their uh, medical issues, uh, first thing I said to myself was, how can I possibly do this unless there's a connection between us? We have to be connected at some deeper level in order for me to do this. There's no other possible explanation of how I was doing what I was doing. And I remember going home that night and not never been really the greatest sleeper in the world, but I, I kind of like sat up, fell asleep sitting up in bed. And I had this overwhelming sense. It was like a, like a, a bright light that appeared in my mind's eye. And it was a soothing feeling like something had washed over me and gave me comfort. I think in Christian terms, you might describe it as the Holy Spirit. You know, and it was an awakening of my consciousness that really changed my life. I mean, I'm a businessman. I still am. But, you know, I'm an international businessman. But I, <laughs> I retrenched a lot and I turned a lot over to my brother on day-to-day -day operations so I could have the time to do what I'm doing right now. Uh, it was a big momentum change for me, you know, family-wise and relationship-wise and everything else. But it was something that I was driven to do because of the reality of what I've experienced. So I can only tell people by my own example that if, I, if it can happen to me, it can happen to anybody. You might have to have, you know, have your desire factor built up there and be inquisitive about it. And, you know, I had a burning desire to understand these things and that helped propel me. But it's something that everyone can experience. It almost sounds a little bit like what people talk about who've had a near-death experience, uh, this this feeling of, um, well, we're not separate, we're all one. Um, what, according to quantum spirituality, happens after we die, after the, the death of the physical body? My, my own conception is that we're multidimensional creatures and that, uh, we have different iterations of ourselves that actually transcend various dimensions. So, you know, there may be multiple aspects of me in other dimensions of existence. Now, some of those could be quasi-physical, etheric. Uh, some of those could be totally energetic, um, 
I don't know. Uh, uh, I haven't really dwelled on, you know, exploring those things, but uh, I do believe that we are these multidimensional creatures. So I believe that when we leave this physical body, um, we simply transition, you know, back to something that has already uh, existed, which probably is a higher state of consciousness anyway. I mean, it's almost like I, I, I feel that there's a version of me dreaming me here somewhere up there. And, and maybe, you know, when I, when I disengage from this body, uh, that version of me awakens, you know, from the dream and then somebody else may be dreaming that version. And I, I think it's, you know, I think it's something like that. I think we transcend dimensions. Quantum spirituality, science, Gnostic mysticism, and connecting with source consciousness. Again, forward by James Redfield, the author of The Celestine Prophecy. Peter, great meeting you and speaking with you. Thank you so much. Yeah, if I could just say for people who are curious about pursuing this, please visit my website, peterconova.com. That's P-E-T-E-R-C-A-N-O-V-A.com. Uh, you can find out more about quantum spirituality and about my other books like the First Souls Trilogy. And the, uh, the URL is in the episode description. Yes, click on that link and it'll take you right there. Thanks again, Peter. Thank you for having me. A new Richard Serrett's Strange Planet drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. 